The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Good afternoon and welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. My name is Ed Chung. I'm the Vice President for Criminal Justice Reform at the Center for American Progress. Happy Friday, everyone. It's great to be sitting in for Leslie today and joining all of you listeners. Uh, if you want to be part of the conversation, feel free to call in at one 888 leslie That's one 653 7543 and you can follow the show on twitter at leslie marshall uh if you're feeling charitable uh you can follow me uh it's at ed chung tweets that's e-d-c-h-u-n-g tweets um i'm very late to the social media party so any pity follows are more than welcome we welcome all followers it's a beautiful day here in dc uh, we've got a great show for you. Uh, in the second half of the program, we're going to be talking with um, Lauren Brooke Eisen from the Brennan Center for Justice and Chirag Baines, who's a phys- uh, visiting senior fellow at Harvard Law School. We're going to be talking all things criminal justice throughout the program, but uh, specifically on things like policing, um, privatization of prisons, and how we unfortunately continue to keep people in jails just because they are poor and they can't pay bail or fees and fines. So. We're looking forward to that, um, but in this first segment, we're going to be talking about something that's uh, really close to my heart because I spent the first part of my career as a prosecutor, and we're going to ta- be talking about the importance of prosecutors in the criminal justice system and uh, reforming the system. Um, I'm thrilled to be joined now by uh, Miriam Krinsky, who is the founder and president of Fair and Just Prosecution, a national network of recently elected local prosecutors. Uh, These prosecutors are committed to new thinking and innovation aimed at promoting a justice system grounded in fairness, equity and compassion and fiscal responsibility. Miriam, welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. Well, thank you, Ed. It's, it's terrific to be part of this conversation. So let's start off by talking about uh, the top prosecutor in the country. Lots of big changes uh, that are happening at the Justice Department under Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Uh, a couple weeks ago, in the middle of all of the you know, daily, if not hourly, uh, bits of information coming about the Russia, Russia scandal, the fight for health care, and so forth, uh, Sessions uh, did... Uh, issue a really significant memo for federal prosecutors and change the way that they would approach their cases. Um, It seems like it's a really dangerous memo. Uh, You were a uh, prosecutor for 15 years uh, in the Justice Department. What is this change that uh, that Sessions made and uh, what does it mean for how federal prosecutors handle cases? Right. Well, I think these issues are similarly near and dear to my heart as somebody who prosecuted Uh, during the 80s and into early 2000. um, What I saw was an era where very many of these tough-on-crime policies played themselves out. And I think what we're seeing, the devil obviously will be in the details and time will tell how it will actually play itself out, but certainly the directives that we saw from the Attorney General recently telling prosecutors around the nation 
to charge, pursue, sentence with the most serious, readily provable offense in mind is a throwback to the 80s. It's, it's very much reminiscent of the tough-on-crime sort of seek-the-maximum war-on-drugs approach. Um, it's reflective of a presumption that we can incarcerate our way into public safety. And you know, certainly there are individuals that do need to be removed from the community and instances where incarceration and long terms of incarceration are appropriate. But I think what we saw over the last few decades is that these so-called tough-on-crime, inflexible directives that don't allow us to consider the individual, don't allow us to consider a host of other challenges, mental health, poverty, um, drug addiction, that are better addressed outside the justice system, that these approaches really haven't worked all that well, that they've led to mounting um, prison populations. We saw a prison population through the 90s into 2010 um, that swelled with over uh, over 110,000 individuals in federal prisons um, serving out mandatory minimum sentences. We saw fiscal implications where the past policies caused the Bureau of Prisons to end up being a third of the Justice Department budget. And I think we've seen over the years that these approaches haven't really made our community safer, that um, crime is now at an all-time low through more nuanced and, and a different kind of thinking than the 1980s, you know, sort of um, Sessions-type directive of simply um, simply applying mandatory minimums and using every penalty possible mm-hmm. as a response to many problems that are better addressed elsewhere. And so, Miriam, I think um, you know what you're referring to in terms of the tough on crime and, and and comparing it to kind of the smarter approaches or the smart on crime approaches that have been popular over the last few years um, is really stark in terms of that comparison. But um, you know there have been some critics about prosecutors in general and their role in the criminal justice system that um, because they have so much discretion over what charges to file and in terms of a guilty plea and what sentences to recommend and so forth, that uh, the prosecutors had played a, a, a large role, um, both at the federal and state level, in, um, in contributing to mass incarceration. Is there is there merit to that argument? Um, and what are you seeing out there in, um, in localities that, that seems to indicate that there's a, a, a change afoot? So I I do think that there's cause for concern and and that there has been valid concerns identified in terms of the role prosecutors have played in in this mass incarceration um, movement. Um, Certainly, prosecutors control the front door. They decide whom to charge, if to charge, whether those charges will be felonies or misdemeanors, whether they're going to seek mandatory minimums, whether they'll seek the harshest of all penalties, namely the death penalty. Um, whether they'll charge somebody as a youth or an adult. So, you know, they really set the pr- trajectory for cases. Um, they can be very much a player in deciding whether individuals should be detained or released on bond. And we know that 95% of cases, I mean, a huge, vast majority of cases, are resolved by a negotiated plea, where essentially prosecutors are the ones who, um, in all, for all intents and purposes, are the judge and jury. They are the ones that are the key to decisions that are often life-defining. And so, you know, I think that gives us good cause to demand transparency and accountability on the part of prosecutors. 
And I do think that we are seeing a different generation and a shifting wind of change among local and state prosecutors who don't subscribe to Attorney General Sessions' view and who believe that their role needs to be a more expansive one, more engaged in the community, more engaged in prevention efforts, and not simply adopting the view that incarceration is the one-size-fits-all response to every problem in our community or the one-size-fits-all pathway to community health mm-hmm. and safety. Yeah, and, and you know, because you and I have both um, been in a courtroom as prosecutors, we've seen how, um, you know, cases are handled, um, but a lot of those decisions are made at the very top. And so what's uh, your view on how prosecutors can make those changes, not only in the uh, in their offices, but also kind of affecting the larger discussion as well? Yeah, well, I think as a political group, you know, their voice is often the weightiest one in terms of criminal justice reform. Um, They are often either the powerful driving force behind or the death knell underlying justice system reform efforts. Um, So not only are they able to change the culture and change the policies within an office, but they can really put a heavy finger on the scale and be the wind behind justice system reform or the stop sign in front of justice system efforts. They also have a powerful ability to convene others. Um, They have justice system partners who will look to them to set the temperature within the justice system. So when it comes to issues around bail reform, around um, diversion efforts, around rethinking how we even measure success of a prosecutor and what their job should be about, they really have an all-important role to play in terms of setting the pathway for their local and state justice system. Uh, we are coming up on a break right now. We're here on uh, the Leslie Marshall Show. Uh, my guest is Miriam Krinsky uh, with the Fair and Just Prosecution. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about uh, some of the local prosecutors that you've been working with um, and see what, what changes that they're looking to make here. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show. Give her a call now at 888-6-LESLIE. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com. And we're back on the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Ed Chung, your guest host for the day. And we're talking with Miriam Krinsky, uh, founder and president of Fair and Just Prosecutions. Uh, Miriam, your organization uh, is key for a lot of newly elected local prosecutors. And in a lot of recent elections across the country uh, this past November, local elections, um, there are a lot of so-called progressive prosecutors who beat some longtime incumbents. And uh, it was really stunning to see um, what was kind of the impetus, both just what they were running on in terms of their platforms and also why their communities uh, embraced the messages that they were advancing. Yeah, well, I think, as you said, Etta, it's um, it's really been a fascinating moment in time. And you know, certainly while, as we discussed earlier, the federal 
landscape and criminal justice winds appear to be blowing in into a more tough on crime set of rhetoric and on viewpoint at a local level we saw some uh, some different shifting winds um, while in the past it's almost been a given that an elected prosecutor is not simply going to be in place and reelected as a matter of rote in fact in over 85 percent of the races DAs and states' attorneys aren't even challenged, but now we're starting to see that changing um, and a greater recognition by the community of the role and clout of prosecutors. And in this past election, as you referenced, um, some individuals who ran on campaigns that essentially underscored the need to be smarter, not tougher on crime, to look more wisely at who we bring into the justice system and the implications of bringing individuals into the justice system, of the need to treat those who are mentally ill or drug addicted um, in a non-criminal justice response, um, the importance of enhanced accountability and transparency within their offices. And I think we're seeing a community appetite for that new thinking. I think we have a greater recognition on the part of communities of the cost of past practices, both the fiscal prison costs as well as the human toll, the families that are broken apart, the lack of community safety when we um, disrupt lives that perhaps can be better um, attended to by not starting down a justice system pathway. And we have different voices now that are starting to be amplified, voices of victims, bipartisan voices, including groups like Right on Crime that are coming together and joining in the view that the footprint of the justice system has been too large, and even law enforcement voices, as exemplified by groups like the Law Enforcement Leaders to Reduce Crime and Incarceration, who have made very clear their view that the default response um, to every broken law shouldn't necessarily be arrest, conviction, prosecution. So it's really a fascinating moment that we find ourselves in. Yeah, and Miriam, who are some of the... um, the new prosecutors that you're working with and what specific types of measures are they focusing on? I know you spoke about things like, you know, um, treating a public health approach or treating um, some of these uh, things that used to be criminalized in a different way. But um, where around the country are uh, some of these prosecutors really making some headway? Right. So um, I think we're seeing um, in parts of the country, urban, rural, um, coast to coast, Um, People committed to reducing the footprint of the system and recognizing the need for smart diversion, as exemplified by Kim Fox in Chicago, who shortly after she came into office, rethought lower-level theft cases um, in a way that will impact um, over a 1,000 cases in her jails. We know that an individual, um, Scott Palome, who's been in office a little over a year in Mississippi, has dramatically increased diversion from the justice system. Kim Ogg in in Houston, Eric Gonzalez in Brooklyn, have rethought how we should deal with marijuana, low-level marijuana cases, and whether we can better address those issues and low-level drug offenders outside the justice system. Andrew Warren in Tampa, who's rethinking um, how we look at issues around citations and quality of life offenses. Um, We have new thinking around accountability. Melissa Nelson, newly elected in Jacksonville, who's working with outside advocates to build out that office's first conviction integrity unit. Um, Beth McCann, the newly elected DA in Denver, 
I gave every member of her office a copy of Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow in recognition of the importance of understanding racial disparity, implicit bias, racial equity issues. Um, and we've seen a willingness and a braveness um, among these individuals to speak out on issues that they know may not always um, be well-received by other political leaders. Um, Aramis Ayala in Orlando and Beth McCann in Denver, shortly after coming into office, both made clear that they no longer um, would be seeking the death penalty because, in their view, that was not consistent with the pursuit of justice. Mm -hmm. And whatever one may think about that issue, I think it's reflective of a willingness to be transparent by this new group, to tell the community where they stand, um, and to not feel fear the political consequences, but really be struggling with trying to get it right and think about what their role should be within the broader construct of this justice system um, revisioning. Miriam, what's uh, you, you started this new organization, Fair and Just Prosecution, and just quickly in the little bit that we have, um, what uh, work do you do to support some of these uh, prosecutors that are really looking to bring up the, bring about the reforms that we're not seeing from the federal government and doing it at the local level? Right. Well, we are trying to make sure that we seize and don't lose this moment, that um, we support and reinforce and try to amplify the work and voices of this new group of um, more uh, change-minded prosecutors. We are looking to connect them to each other and to best thinking around the nation. Um, for many of them, it's a very lonely job, and it can often be very parochial. And we're trying to expose them, expand their horizons, bring in new thinking, ensure that they can learn from each other and educate others uh, more broadly in the community. This is also a group of individuals who, many of whom have broken through glass ceilings, and, um, and they look different than elected prosecutors around the nation. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to give them sort of that space and enable others to see the successes of the approaches that they're bringing to the table um, so that this momentum and, and sort of this fire that's being lit under state and local justice system reform can burn that much brighter. Well, Miriam, we really appreciate the work that you're doing. We thank you so much for the information. Uh, it's a really crucial issue about the role of prosecutors in the justice system, so thanks so much for joining us. Uh, you're, you've been listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host, Ed Chung, and we'll be right back with Sharag Baines and L.D. Eisen. Leslie Marshall, not left, not right, just real talk at 888-6-LESLIE. And we're back. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host for today, Ed Chung. Uh, you can follow the show at Leslie Marshall, and you could also call in at 1-888-6-LESLIE. That's 1-888-653-7543. We're talking criminal justice today. We're talking about one of the most dangerous, if not the most dangerous uh, people in this president's administration and what we're doing at the both at the federal level and at the state level on criminal justice reform. I'm joined by two colleagues, two of my favorite people in this area, 
with us is Lauren Brooke Eisen, senior counsel at the Brennan Center, who specializes in criminal justice reform and how these systems are funded. She's writing a book on private prisons entitled Private Prisons, an American Dilemma in the Age of Mass Incarceration, which will be published in the fall. Lauren, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And also joining us in studio here is uh, Shirag Baines, visiting senior fellow the Harvard Law School Criminal Justice Policy Program, uh, who focuses on police accountability, civil rights, and reforming the criminal justice practices that punish people for their poverty. Shirag, welcome. Thank you, Ed. Happy to be here with you guys. So there have been a few articles out recently that have confirmed kind of what I'm thinking, in that in these first few months of the Trump administration, it's Jeff Sessions who has really been, in a meticulous way, instituting a uh, policy that... uh, is part of his ideology, but it's also doing a lot of harm to the things that uh, a lot of progressives hold dear. And so from your perspectives, what are the things that you find, um, not only this space of criminal justice, but generally that uh, Jeff Sessions has been doing that you find particularly dangerous? Shirag, we'll start with you. Well, I guess it's a question of how much time we have, Ed, because it's, it's really a long list, and, and that is shocking, given that this administration has been in place for just over four months now. Jeff Sessions is extremely active. He was prepared for this job. He's a former U.S. attorney for 12 years. He was a federal judge nominee uh, until his appointment was derailed by allegations about allegedly racist, racist remarks. And uh, he was, of course, in the Senate for 20 years, including serving on the Judiciary Committee. And he knows what he wants to do with the Justice Department. And I think uh, in that bucket, the very number one thing is reverse as much of the progress on civil rights and criminal justice reform that was made under President Obama as possible. So uh, we can take these in turn, but I'll just say very quickly, there's police reform is no longer a priority for this department. In fact, the Department of Justice is trying to slow down that work or get out of it entirely. Uh, and that is specifically with regard to federal investigations of police departments for excessive force and biased policing and um, trying to likely let some of these jurisdictions out of consent decrees or at least not enforce those consent decrees that are in place. Voting rights has been an area of major uh, regression. You saw the department pulling out of a particular claim of intentional discrimination in a landmark case involving Texas's voter ID law. That's a law that several times now has been deemed to be discriminatory, but the Justice Department backed away from its claim that it was. LGBT rights is another major area. Private prisons, the list goes on. Yes, and it, you're absolutely right. We could be spending the entire hour, the entire day, the entire week on all, listing out all the things that are harmful. Um, Lauren, in terms of your work and the work of the Brennan Center that's been focusing a lot about mass incarceration and now the reinstitution of the policies that could contribute to that, what are some of the things that uh, the listeners may not know or may not be fully aware of about what's happening in the Justice Department that could um, contribute, again, to the rise of mass incarceration? Well, I agree with what Shrug said, and you know I think it's important to keep in mind that there is a bipartisan consensus that mass incarceration, um, you know, the 2.3 million people who are incarcerated, whether in county jails, state prison, or federal prison, that began about four decades ago, has been a, a hugely um, costly, you know, financially and morally failure in this country, and Republicans and Democrats had come to a consensus about this. Um, and yes, you know, the Obama administration had worked across party lines to um, focus on changing policies and practices. And what we're seeing now that is so, so dangerous is 
that there's a lot of rhetoric um, about crime in this country. And Attorney General Sessions has spoken time and time again about how you know, crime is increasing. And Donald, you know, President Trump has spoken about um, you know, blood and carnage in the streets. And they're painting this picture of this crime-ridden America that just doesn't reflect reality. In fact, we are safer today than we have been in, in decades. Um, you know, since the 1990s, crime has dropped dramatically. Violent crime, um, nonviolent crime, property crime has greatly reduced. And they are using this rhetoric to justify a lot of these policies um, and these, these changes in practices. And that's what's really dangerous. So, Lauren, going to the bipartisan part that you were talking about, a lot of the states and localities that have been interested in the space have been working on reforms for quite some time now. And so we have this uh, rhetoric coming out of the federal government that's saying, you know, there's this American carnage, there's this amazing national crime wave, and so we have to get tougher on crime. Is that resonating among locals or do you think that uh, the movement for reform and the, and the push for it is going to continue? So that's the concern, is that the rhetoric of this administration will have a tremendous chilling effect on state and local leaders who are trying to reform their policies and practices and reduce their prison populations. Um, but there has been a lot of great work in the states to focus on policies that reduce crime and incarceration at the same time. Um, and I know you're both familiar with this justice reinvestment effort um, where states have worked to change their laws and reduce certain penalties and create more options for judges to send defendants to alternatives to incarceration or diversion programs, you know, people who just don't need to be incarcerated. So a lot of that great work has happened over the years um, in states such as Texas and um, South Carolina and Kentucky and Rhode Island and um, Delaware and Massachusetts. And some of that work is still going on now. Um, you know, Oklahoma has been working to pass some reform legislation. Unfortunately, um, it looks like it, it didn't actually pass this year, um, but Louisiana has passed, um, you know, is working to, to, to reform some of their policies. And, you know, we're seeing some momentum still continuing in the states, um, but our fear is that this rhetoric at the national level will make it harder for states to continue to reform their practices. Shirag, you uh, worked in the Civil Rights Division at the Department of Justice um, in the last administration, and you were also uh, instrumental in part of the investigatory team or investigation team looking into Ferguson and other uh, types of police practices. In terms of the movement for reform in, in policing, uh, what's your take about where we are? I know that you know Sessions has kind of, in 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 rhetoric at least, pulled back on that, but. Is there a movement among states and localities to continue that uh, momentum? Yes, there is a movement. Uh, it's really a movement that's driven by uh, local residents, activists, advocates, people who see the need for change and have taken to the streets, written to their re representatives about it, and are pushing change in their local government. It's really driven by them. But there's a question right now about how robust that movement is and whether it will turn into lasting change in terms of policy. And there, DOJ was playing a very important role 
you know, first and foremost, the Civil Rights Division is tasked on these issues with enforcing the Constitution, ensuring that police departments abide by people's constitutional rights, respect their Fourth Amendment rights, their First Amendment rights to express themselves, and so forth. And the department opened uh, you know, two dozen investigations into local police agencies around the country. Now, put that in the scheme of things, there's 18,000 police departments, but some of these are very large investigations, such as the one into Chicago. And the, these consent decrees have been shown to, over time, have a, an impact in terms of reducing the use of force and address racial bias in policing. And that work will is being uh, shrunk, decidedly. That is the goal of the Sessions administration. So DOJ, I think, is trying to get out of this work or slow it down. You saw them try to get out of the consent decree that they negotiated in Baltimore in February, and the judge uh, disallowed that. I'm sorry, in April. Uh, in April, the judge said, no, this was negotiated, it was agreed, I'm going to enter it, and he entered it. So. So that's in and DOJ. The courts will serve as a check on DOJ in terms of those agreements. It will push forward. Uh, but in terms of broader change, what does the movement look like out there? There have been a, a number of uh, state and local laws passed. Actually, more than um, half the states in the in the last two years have passed uh, statutes having to do with body cams. There's legislation on use of force, accountability, uh, and I can give you some examples of that. But uh, the, the idea is that there is movement for reform. The question is how robust will it will be and what will be the impact of DOJ and the federal government sort of pulling out or in some cases coming in on the opposite sides of these issues. And we, I, this is the Leslie Marshall Show. You're listening uh, to us talk about some of the issues happening in uh, criminal justice and policing. Uh, the number here is 1-888-6LESLIE. That's 1-888-653-7543. We have a caller, line three. Kenneth, you're on. Hi, Ed. Uh, y yes, um, so my name is Kenneth, uh, and I I've been listening to a lot of what your guests have been uh, talk, speaking about in terms of the rhetoric that we're seeing impact our communities. And I think that it's such a big point. Uh, this administration has had uh, really incredible opportunities uh, to have, make a really transformative impact on what our local communities are able to do and our local governments in terms of uh, kind of leveling, uh, you know, leveling the communication uh, and enhancing communication between not only police but our, our local governments as well as the communities that they work with and impact. And so I think we're really missing out these incredible transformative opportunities to support a lot of outreach, whether they're citizen police academies, which we do a lot here in New York, or whether it is investments in community projects and school buildings or external uh, business partners to kind of get out there and, and just build incredible relationships. And so I think that's one of the major things we're seeing uh, in terms of the rhetoric coming out of this administration. And they're really passing every transformative opportunity um, to, to, to make what could be a really lasting impact from the president and that could really set aside some of this vitriol that we've seen uh, to happen. And essentially, as much as our activists are fighting and they're doing some great work, I just worry that your last guest mentioned we'll see a lot of this checked by the courts. But my concern is that having so much of this checked by the courts and kind of fall back into, into communities really creates and yet another debate, yet another political debacle that we'll have to fight again, that we'll see these major civil rights issues become, again, major political talking points in the next election, in the next midterm. And so it really is overstressing our, our community activists. And I really hope that we're not missing too many more of these transformative opportunities to just connect and, yeah. and, and just outreach and just be smart with our investments in our, in our local in our local government and police system. Yeah, thanks, Kenneth. Um, and Shirag, and you, your work in the Civil Rights Division, it was it was 
incumbent on you to work with communities in order to make sure that any reform that you uh, instill in, in police departments or elsewhere, um, that the community buys into that. That's right. And to Kenneth's, Kenneth's point, these were issues that were well understood in the communities where we were. We were more often lifting up voices and you know, issuing documented reports that had were evidence-based you know, as a result of reviewing police records and speaking with officers and community members that told the story that was known in the community but wasn't known more broadly than that community. That is, the communities that were most impacted, mostly black and brown communities around the country uh, where policing has been heaviest. So I, I think this... You know, this is known. There's a set of issues that has to be worked on in local communities around the country. The fact that the federal government is no longer going to be at the vanguard here is uh, disappointing, but this is an opportunity for real progress. We have to, all progress on law enforcement will be pushed by people at the local level, and there is a real opportunity here. Uh, we have another caller, line two, Ismail. Hello, can you hear me? Hello? Yeah, we can hear you. You're on. Yes, uh, thank you so much. Uh, thank you. Uh, greeting to you and greeting to you, guests. Uh, I just have two questions. Uh, the first one, you talked a little bit about uh, Jeff Sessions rolling back uh, everything that the Obama administration that he called or uh, did. Uh, can any of those be challenged, all his orders, uh, because he lied in front of Congress under oath? And um, the second question is about uh, a private prison. Can they be challenged, anything in the Constitution where we can challenge them? Yeah, thanks, Ismail, for the question. Uh, we're going to turn that second question. We're going to turn to an expert on this that we we do have uh, on there. And uh, LB, the question is about private prisons. What's uh, uh, the what's what's the prospects for private prisons? I guess under this new tough on crime rhetoric that's uh, Attorney General Sessions is is pushing. So that's an, an excellent question that the caller raised. In terms of whether. Um, we can push back um, on some of the administration's reliance on private prisons um, in, in the courts or for constitutional reasons. That's a tough one. So what happened was that uh, Jeff, Attorney General Sessions just issued a very short one-paragraph memo to the acting head of the Bureau of Prisons, and it was pretty simple, and it just said, um, you know, basically ignore the, the, the memo that Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates sent last year um, indicating that we were going to curb our reliance on private prisons. Um, we can, you know, we should still be relying on them. And in fact, since the, um, you know, under this new administration, more, immigra more immigration detention facilities um, have started to be built. And, you know, that is specifically under ICE, you know, Department of Homeland Security. So that's a little bit separate from DOJ. Um, but I think it's an indication that the administration is going to be relying on private prison companies to house um, people within the Bureau of Prisons. So those are um, inmates who have already been convicted of a criminal uh, offense, as well as immigrant detainees. Uh, and what happens in immigration detention facilities is that ICE usually contracts out probably about 60% of immigration detention facilities across the country to private prison companies. And these are places where undocumented citizens are held um, while they you know, wait out their court hearings and their asylum hearings. And these are people who have not been convicted of a criminal offense. Um, they're merely civil detainees. And we're expecting that to and, really increase uh, un under uh, this administration. Uh, absolutely. And, 
you know, there, there are a number of signs that this is happening. There's, there's the memo that Attorney General Sessions sent to the BOP indicating that um, they would likely need to rely on private prisons more in the future. Um, and additionally, you know, we've seen the administration um, contract with more private prisons for immigration detention facilities. Uh. Lauren, I, I, we were running out of time, but I want to make sure that you get to plug the book that's coming out this fall. What's the title of the book that you're writing? Thank you. So the book is called Inside Private Prisons, An American Dilemma in the Age of Mass Incarceration. And it looks at the history um, of private prisons, how they emerged, and um, you know what, what their impact on mass incarceration is. And um, it also explores the area of immigration detention. And Chirag, just so where they can find you, you are on social media? Probably you can get me on Twitter as best, at Chirag Baines. Also check out the Take Care blog where I've been doing some writing and others have, as well about the questions at the cholera ass and others. Takecareblog.com. Sounds good. Thanks to you all uh, for joining us. We're going to be right back after a break. Uh, this is the Leslie Marshall Show. Leslie Marshall, the simple truth in a complicated world. Give her a call now at 888-6-LESLIE. And we're back. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. Uh, I'm Ed Chung, who been, I've been sitting here as guest host for Leslie today. And we're joined by Patrick Gavin. Patrick, the United States is pulling out of the Paris Climate Accords. What's the latest on that? Well, the latest really is just a, a whole bunch of reaction, most of it negative, uh, not only here in Washington, but certainly around the world, and also uh, with, with uh, U.S. businesses as well. The reaction has not been great. I mean, I think you saw yesterday uh, President Trump giving a fairly uh, nationalist, uh, almost like a campaign speech, and really relishing in uh, in the moment. And also, I think, relishing the idea that he's kind of uh, telling telling the world to kiss off a little bit. Uh, the reporting coming out of the White House is, you know, that guiding his decision was sort of two things. One was he did really view this as uh, something that he owed his campaign, uh, his campaign base, and uh, that's why you saw him talk so much about uh, the coal industry and miners and workers and natural gas and really in kind of construction uh, industries all around the nation. So first, so first of all, there was that, but also, uh, you know, he, he very much has an idea of not um, America first, but really America alone, and sort of an us first them attitude towards. Uh, towards the, the international community, and that's why he saw in the speech and really dismissed quite uh, negatively, you know, uh, diplomats and international communities and world capitals, and uh, he really views this as a us first them argument around the around the country. The reaction, as you can expect, uh, from those left of Trump is nothing positive, but it's also galvanizing his opponents in a really strong way, and we've seen this a lot, be it on healthcare uh, to to the Paris Accord. Uh, there's actually now a new group that it's an unnamed group, which includes about 30 mayors and yeah. governors and university presences and, and businesses that's going to now try to negotiate with the U.S. Yeah. to have its uh, commission accepted alongside. And Michael Bloomberg, Patrick, uh, philanthropy. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. I think we're, we're going to see the fallout coming in the next several weeks. And so we really appreciate that report. Um, this has been the Leslie Marshall Show. I've been, I'm, I am Ed Chung. I've been sitting in. And so thanks to everybody for listening. And just to wrap everything up for the week, we can sum it up in one word. I think it's confefe. Have a great weekend, everyone.